0: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. A quick warning for this episode that we do hear threats of violence, which include some offensive language. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We've talked recently on the podcast about that video that was posted by Republican Congressman Paul Gosar, which depicted in anime style the killing of the Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was horribly violent and there was huge pressure on Paul Gosar to apologise, which he eventually did, and also to take the video down. But in the debate, plenty of his colleagues rallied to his side, defending what they said was his right to free speech. One of those defenders was a fellow Republican member of Congress, a new member from Colorado, Lauren Bobert, who said this in the debate on the House floor.
1: The Jihad Squad member from Minnesota has paid her husband, and not her brother husband, the other one, over a million dollars in campaign funds. This member is allowed on the Foreign Affairs Committee while praising terrorists.
0: Bobart referring there to Ilhan Omar, Democratic congresswoman from Minnesota, and a recent report by Fox News that Omar had allegedly paid the political consultancy firm owned by her husband nearly $3 million during the 2020 election cycle. Omar ended the contract with the firm last year. But putting aside those accusations, it was the Islamophobic comments that Bobart Got most criticism for. In the last week, a couple of videos have emerged showing Boba boasting about what she called a jihad squad moment that she had when she bumped into or encountered Ilan Omar herself in a lift. Boba issued an apology under some pressure, apologising to anybody in the Muslim community that she might have offended, but she would not say sorry to the woman she had spoken about directly. Ilhan Omar. Well, all of that has got people talking about Islamophobia in the Republican Party and in America itself. So to discuss all this, I'm joined this week by Abdul El Sayed, who is an epidemiologist, a political commentator, an author and a former candidate for the governorship of Michigan. And I started off by asking him to tell us a bit more about the players in this drama, starting with Lauren Bobert. Lauren Boebert is a reactionary
1: right-wing uh conservative congresswoman out of Colorado and uh she has a history of of being a Trump acolyte complete with the the kinds of of hateful comments that we're hearing right now um most recently yeah you know she she wore a uh a red dressed to go meet with uh, former President Trump that said, let's go, Brandon, on the back, which has become sort of a euphemism uh, for a mean thing to say about uh, Joe Biden.
0: So you say this is a coded way of sending a message about Joe Biden. Just explain that to us.
1: Yeah, there was a NASCAR event. So for folks who uh, don't watch stock car racing in the United States, it's um, uh, a relatively large, uh, has a relatively large following. And um, there was an individual who won a race. His name was Brandon. And the folks in the stands, usually commands several hundreds of thousands of people who come to watch these races, were chanting F. Joe Biden. And the, the commentator thought that they were chanting, let's go, Brandon. And uh, that being because the, the, the stock car driver who'd won the race, his name is Brandon. And so let's go, Brandon became a bit of a euphemism and has become
0: uh, sort of this coded language for F. Joe Biden. It's a fascinating commentary on the culture wars. NASCAR, always part of the culture in a way in American politics. It's made a, had a walk on part in American politics before. But so often these messages go in this kind of coded way, as you've described. Anyway, that's Lauren Boba. We've talked about her a bit on the podcast before. In a way, she's a sort of bit of a counterpart to Marjorie Taylor Greene, that, that sort of uh, those, those kinds of politics. So she's in one corner, if you like, in the red corner. Now the other player in this drama is ilhan omar who is she ilhan
1: omar is a progressive congresswoman uh, who was first elected in in 2018 quote-unquote member of the squad um one of four progressive uh, congresswomen of color who would have been elected uh in that year in, in 2018 and she serves the district in in minnesota and she's uh one of the first Muslim women to be elected to Congress. She also is the only congresswoman uh, to wear hi- a hijab. And um, she's also a Somali immigrant
0: uh, who came to this country as a refugee. So these two could not really be more polar opposite to each other. They're both on, in some ways, the kind of radical edges of their own parties. And so they were, these are two people who are never going to get on, but they have directly clashed. Tell us exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, I also would push back just on the framing. I think we don't do our ideals a service in this country when um, we sort of represent them as as, as two sides of of, of, a, of a coin, uh, but rather, right, really to talk through what happened in the context of one person uh, making a, a really terrible set of of racist claims about the other. So what happened is is that there was video that uh, that surfaced of. Uh, Bobert at a campaign event uh, where she told this story that has, has since failed to be corroborated. I see a Capitol Police officer running hurriedly to the elevator. I see fret all over his face. Uh, where she gets into a elevator with Ilhan Omar, and a Capitol Police person uh, comes rushing forward, and uh, Bobert says, She doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. No. No. Uh, implying that, you know, she'd be a a real terrorist threat uh, if she was wearing a backpack. And she also uh, called uh, Ilhan a member of the jihad squad. And so uh, what you're hearing here is a clear use of a a set of images and assertions that equate Ilhan because of her Muslim faith with terrorism. Um, And of course, this has a long history uh, in our country, particularly since uh, 9-11, equating Muslims with terrorists.
0: But as as you say, those are two quite well-known sort of tropes of Islamophobia. Use of the word jihad to describe, uh, you know, a visible or believing Muslim and then the equation or association with terrorism. How did Ilhan Omar respond to these things being said about her?
1: Well, she she immediately asked for a public apology and called this what it was, which is uh, a, a frank example of Islamophobia and the same kinds of insults Uh, and tropes that have been used to to marginalize and
0: otherize Muslims in this country for a very long time. And so this, this didn't just remain sort of megaphone diplomacy, if you like, with the two of them just speaking to each other through the media. They did in the end, and I think this is what's got people fascinated by this story. These two extremely different people did talk to each other directly. They did
1: phone call between Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar did not do much to diffuse tensions, if at all, between the two. So Boebert called Ilhan Omar and said to the effect that um, she, as a, in her words, a strong Christian woman, would never want to alienate anybody uh, on account of, of their religion. And Ilhan demanded a public apology. And Bobert kept saying that she wouldn't uh, issue a public a- an apology. And So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. Ultimately, Ilhan ended up hanging the phone up on Boebert. And then she issued the following statement. She said instead of apologizing for his her Islamophobic comments and fabricated lies, Representative Boebert refused to publicly acknowledge her hurtful and dangerous comments. She instead doubled down on her rhetoric and I
0: decided to end the unproductive call. So let's unpack this a bit, because it's quite a lot going on there. Let's go with this very first formulation, which I find really interesting. Her defining herself, Lauren Boebert, saying as a strong Christian woman. What do you think is going on with, with that form of words and her using it in this context? She's trying to argue
1: that because she identifies as a person of faith, that her comments cannot be construed as alienating other people of faith. And this is a really common assertion by people who will marginalize people on account of a different faith than theirs. They'll say, well, as a person uh, of faith myself, there's nothing I would intend to say. Uh, That would be uh, alienating to to other people of faith when, of course, uh, the issue here isn't about being a person of faith. The issue is about being a Muslim person of faith, Uh, which, of course, unfortunately, there is a strong history uh, among the conservative right in this country that tends to often be evangelical of particularly and, and specifically marginalizing and making these kinds of assertions about people of the Muslim faith.
0: You have to have a pretty limited knowledge of history, don't you, to think that because one person subscribes to a faith, they are not going to have negative attitudes towards other people of faith. I mean, that is where conflict has been for many, many centuries. That that's right, and, and and unfortunately,
1: right. And I'm not trying to argue that all people who are evangelical hold these perspectives, but you've often heard uh, the most pointed and um, and really the most dangerous assertions uh, coming from uh, the extreme right and 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 folks. Uh, on the extreme light, are, are substantially more likely to be evangelical Christians. And so, you know, to your point, right, the, the fact that one holds a faith uh, does not then bar them from discriminating against people of other faiths. Unfortunately, uh, history is rife with these kinds of examples.
0: Yeah, it struck me hearing it that it was a signal to her own supporters saying, here I am standing up for a very particular, and again, we've talked about this on this podcast, a kind of muscular Christianist politics i'm standing up and fighting the good fight against this sort of muslim other i felt hearing the phrase that she was doing a bit of signaling to her own base there uh in a way your response is actually a little bit you know you're you're being a tiny bit more generous i think well i
1: i think you're you're absolutely right um you know what what she's doing is appealing to a rather um stereotyped uh set of ideals among her base which is that we are the normal Americans and that anyone else uh, who comes here uh, or, you know, frankly, who was brought here, this appeal to her base on a white identitarian frame really does uh, sort of appeal to the sense that we are normal and anyone else is, is not. So what's
0: your read of why she put the call in in the first place? Do you think it was a good faith effort to build bridges and to make amends? Or do you think this was always intended to be some kind of, what, a stunt? Well, I can't uh, judge what's in someone's mind or heart. But what I will
1: say is that it's a pretty regular uh, occurrence now where uh, you have an individual who has offended and said something racist or or, uh, Islamophobic against somebody and then uh, reaches out to them. And when by design their apology is unacceptable, it doesn't actually address the frank wrong that was done they come back and then play the victim again to their own base, saying that, well, I tried to be the bigger person. I tried to, to, to bury the hatchet here. But, but this person, right, as a function of who they are, tried to, you know, in, in, in Lauren, Lauren Boebert's words here, tried to cancel me uh, by, by hanging up on her. And that, you know, in the context of a second video. This new video is from a September Republican fundraiser. Boebert not only tells her elevator story, she also calls Omar and another Muslim member of Congress black-hearted and evil. What this tells us is it's not just a certain casual Islamophobia on Bobert's part. In fact, it is part of her political persona. It's part of her political identity. It's part of her political brand uh, to wield Islamophobia uh, in the process of our politics. And so y- you get a real sense that this isn't just about, you know, one person's Islamophobic animus. This is about trying to, uh, to, to build a political identity. Um, that is frankly marginalizing of Muslim people uh, and implicitly uh, arguing that Muslim people don 't
0: belong here now you mentioned that ilhan omar is is, is well known as a member of the so called squad for women of color in Congress in the House. It you know goes without saying or perhaps shouldn 't go without saying that all four of them have been on the receiving end of serious abuse threats online abuse and um, abuse from the highest level. And, you know, Donald Trump saying that they should go back where they came from uh, rather famously. What extra element do you think it adds to Ilhan Omar that she is a Muslim? She
1: typifies a certain target of antipathy among the white identitarian right. And uh, and so it has made her the kind of target uh, that is unfortunately... Um, almost always pushed forward as an example of what uh, the right is against in this country, and it has led to to, to really serious threats on her life and uh, the kind of abuse that uh, day in and day out. You know, you just have to lament. The consequences of what Bobert is saying uh, to Ilhan don't end with Ilhan. Um, unfortunately, they started with Ilhan uh, and Muslim folks in this country uh, who uh, are just trying to go about their lives. They are now uh, being told by their leaders that, uh, that in fact, it is open season on Muslims, that this kind of abuse and, and this kind of Islamophobia is
0: is tolerable. And are you seeing that, Taytay? Give us a sense of what the picture is right now. How big a problem is Islamophobia in today's America, in terms of attacks, other figures rising, just give us a sketch of of, of how severe a problem this currently is.
1: Well, certainly, you know, in the twenty years since nine eleven, you saw the, the the kind of Islamophobia uh, leading to violence rise substantially, and even more so in the aftermath of Donald Trump's uh, rise to the presidency and uh, his ultimate election. And I'll tell you just anecdotally, as a Muslim American, the experience of post nine eleven America and in post-Trump America in particular, uh, has been a harrowing one. And a, the vast proportion of racist abuse that Muslims are subjected to goes um, unreported. Folks feel like if they do report it, then uh, they might be bringing more uh, back onto themselves. And so even the evidence that we have, despite the fact that it has demonstrated a rise in Islamophobia, even that evidence uh, is really quite limited and in only really uh, captures the, the tip of the iceberg.
0: It's really interesting to me that you mentioned nine eleven because that was in my mind anyway, partly because of the contrast, which is After 9-11, a Republican president, George W. Bush, made a big point of saying... These acts of violence against innocents violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. And it's important for my fellow Americans to understand that. This is not on all Muslims. This is not on America's Muslims. And he went, very visibly, very famously, to a mosque, I think within five days of 9-11, to underline that point... You're saying that we are a long way from that now. Well, of course, Donald Trump ran on a
1: complete and total ban of Muslims entering this country. Um, And he tried to make good on that uh, on multiple occasions. Uh, He specifically uh, targeted Ilhan Omar because of uh, her Muslim faith and and, and, and because of her uh, status as an immigrant. We can't divorce this from the history of our country. Our country fought two wars in predominantly Muslim countries when you spend $2 trillion to fire up a war machine and... Uh, all of the imagery that you show of who the quote-unquote enemy is looks a particular way, the consequences on society are really quite profound. All Donald Trump did was target um, very explicitly and name who the perceived enemy was to a very particular uh, base of, of you know, white, identitarian, right-wing extremists. And, and then the other thing that Donald Trump did was created a bunch of mini-Trumps, right? Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, these are all... Mini Trumps, and even uh, if you are not an explicit mini Trump yourself, you you have to you have become a Trump apologist. You made
0: the point that much of the criticism of Ilhan Omar is Islamophobic. I'm I'm interested to ask you whether you think any of it is ever fair, and I'm thinking particularly of a remark that she made, and she did um, you know apologize for when she was discussing uh, APAC, the pro-Israel organization, and said you know support for APAC was her words all about the Benjamins, a reference to money, with an unhappy history there, given the association of of Jews and money. And she did apologize for that. She was criticized for that. Do you, do you believe there is, you know, it's possible for people to make criticisms of Ilhan Omar that are not uh, Islamophobic or prejudiced against Muslims? You know, the, the point is that you can criticize somebody for what they
1: say and what they do. You can't criticize them for what they are. And the kind of uh, abuse that she is taking right now has nothing to do with, with what she's said or what she's done, which, of course, uh, is up for criticism, right? As she is a, a public servant and she is a politician. And uh, some of the things that she says and does are going to be liable to be criticized. But it's a different thing to criticize her for what she is. In the case of that tweet that, uh, that Ilhan Omar made, it was a really clumsy tweet. I don't think she intended it that way, but she also recognized uh, that she did play in some respect to a trope, and she apologized for it. And you know, that's what we want in our in our public servants that they recognize what they did wrong and that they apologize for it.
0: I, I want to hear your reaction to sort of worry that I have a little bit observing from some distance away, which is you know where this current dynamic ends. We've we talked again on, on this podcast about the video that Congressman Paul Gosar distributed. He was not rebuked by his own party for that and actually reposted the video, you then have this sort of odd dynamic of an, almost a kind of arms race among the mini-Trumps, your phrase, competing with each other to be ever more outrageous. And some of Lauren Bobart's colleagues have, uh, have sort of doubled down on her behalf. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a very similar kind of far-right Republican, went on the TV show of Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist, to say that Boba did nothing wrong. And, and actually going further in her attacks on Ilhan Omar, saying she's pro-Hamas, pro-Al-Qaeda, etc. You know, the worry I have is where does this lead? And I, I'm, I'm sort of almost reluctant to actually spell it out, but, you know, it's implied in that video. And the violent threats um, that, you know, Congresswoman Omar played, I think, the audio of an explicit death threat she had received on her voicemail, and perhaps we can hear that. You will not live much longer, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that. These people are rising up. I mean, how worried are you by this? That this doesn't just stay at the level of talk?
1: Yeah, I, I'm really quite profoundly worried, and I think anyone who loves and believes in our democracy in America ought to be profoundly worried that is a really dangerous strain in our politics. And unfortunately, it is one that we've seen coming since the the earliest days when Donald Trump came down that doomed escalator. It's the the kind of violence that that brings upon, but it's also the kinds of civics that that creates where you have a frank effort to disenfranchise people through uh, laws intended to suppress the votes of people of color uh, in urban communities across our country. It is an anti-democratic strain of politics. And the question now is how do we take it on? Uh, because unfortunately, even after Trump, these mini Trumps uh, are continuing to perpetuate
0: and grow it. We always ask, Abdul, our guests on this podcast, a what else question. And I have mentioned that you are an epidemiologist. And so I'm bound to ask you about all of that this week, especially because uh, we are just learning more and more about this new variant of coronavirus, the Omicron variant, which could be uh, even more troubling. So the question is, this week, uh, we've seen a group of Senate conservatives planning to force a shutdown of the federal government unless Democratic leaders agree to block money that would be used to enforce uh, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate on the private sector, making the uh, uh, vaccination uh, compulsory in effect. If enough Republicans managed to rally behind this uh, objection, it could uh, lead even to a shutdown of the government for several days because it would deny that stopgap funding. What do you make of all this?
1: It, it is a really dangerous development. I'll tell you that the other piece of uh, this strain of identitarian politics that we're seeing build and emerge on the right uh, is an opposition, a rejection to any form of truth that, uh, that doesn't comport with the beliefs of their leader. Um, and that includes journalism, that includes science. And so much of this move is about trying to placate an anti-science base that uh that doesn't believe that the pandemic is real let alone uh that the vaccines are safe and effective and they're willing to shut down the government over it this is something all of us ought to be worried about and so uh, i think that we have to see all of these uh these these issues in context together and where we make decisions uh, based on reason and thought rather than uh, based on uh, the fears and anger Uh, of a small
0: contingent of people who want to tear us apart. My thanks to Dr. Abdul El-Sayed for talking to me on the podcast this week. Now, as you know, all weeks are good weeks to listen to Guardian podcasts, but this one is a bit of a standout. In UK Politics Weekly, Jessica Elgott has the first interview with the former head of communications for Keir Starmer, Ben Nunn. So that is really worth listening to. And the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, talks very candidly to Grace Dent on her podcast, Comfort Eating, about his own eating disorder. On Wednesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, Nosheen Iqbal looks at the latest fight over abortion rights in the US. And our award winning Football Weekly podcast recorded a special on misogyny in the game. So you are spoiled for choice. Do look out for those wherever You get your podcast, but for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe, and thanks as always for listening. This is the Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without
0: the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.